Book Three, Chapter One of Les Miserables, translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Betty Greeby in Wapella, Illinois. Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Book Three, Chapter One, The Year eighteen seventeen. Eighteen seventeen is the year which Louis the Eighteenth, with a certain royal assurance which was not wanting in pride, entitled the twenty-second of his reign. It is the year in which M. Bruguier de Sossum was celebrated. All the hairdressers' shops, hoping for powder and the return of the royal bird were besmeared with azure and decked with fleur-de-lis. It was the candid time at which Count Lynch sat every Sunday as churchwarden in the churchwarden's pew of Saint-Germain-des-Prix, in his costume of a peer of France, with his red ribbon and his long nose, and the majesty of profile peculiar to a man who has performed a brilliant action. The brilliant action performed by M. Lynch was this. Being mayor of Bordeaux on the 12th of March, 1814, he had surrendered the city a little too promptly to M. the Duc d'Angoulême, hence his peerage. In 1817, fashion swallowed up little boys of from four to six years of age in vast caps of Morocco leather, with ear-tabs resembling Esquimomitre. The French army was dressed in white, after the mode of the Austrian. The regiments were called legions. Instead of numbers, they bore the names of departments. Napoleon was at St. Helena, and since England refused him green cloth, he was having his old coats turned. In 1817, Pellegrini sang, Mademoiselle Bigottini danced, Portia reigned, Audrey did not yet exist. Madame Saki had succeeded to Forioso. There were still Prussians in France. M. Delalot was a personage. Legitimacy had just asserted itself by cutting off the hand, then the head, of Plénier, of Carbonneau, and of Talleyrand. The Prince de Talleyrand, Grand Chamberlain, and the Aube Louis, appointed Minister of Finance, laughed as they looked at each other, with the laugh of the two augurs, both whom had celebrated on the 14th of July, 1790, the Mass of Federation in the Champ de Mars. Talleyrand said it as bishop. Louis had served it in the capacity of deacon. In 1817, in the side alleys of this same Champ de Mars, two great cylinders of wood might have been seen lying in the rain, rotting amid the grass, painted blue, with traces of eagles and bees, from which the gilding was falling. These were the columns which two years before had upheld the emperor's platform in the Champ de May. They were blackened here and there with the scorches of the bivouac of Austrians encamped near Gros Cailloux. Two or three of these columns had disappeared in these bivouac fires, 
and had warmed the large hands of the imperial troops. The field of May had this remarkable point, that it had been held in the month of June, and in the field of March, Mars. In this year, 1817, two things were popular, the Volder Toquet and the snuff-box à la Chatea. The most recent Parisian sensation was the crime of Dautun, who had thrown his brother's head into the fountain of the flower-market. They had begun to feel anxious at the naval department, on account of the lack of news from that fatal frigate, the Medusa, which was destined to cover Chalmeret with infamy and Gericault with glory. Colonel Selves was going to Egypt to become Solomon Pasha. The palace of Thermes, in the Rue de la Hobe, served as a shop for a cooper. On the platform of the octagonal tower of the Hotel de Cluny, the little shed of boards which had served as an observatory to Monsieur, the naval astronomer under Louis the Fourteenth, was still to be seen. The Duchess de Duras read to three or four friends her unpublished Origa, in her boudoir furnished by ten in sky-blue satin. The ends were scratched off the Louvre. The bridge of Austerlitz had abdicated, and was entitled the bridge of the King's Garden, du Jardin du Roi, a double enigma, which disguised the bridge of Austerlitz and the Jardin de Plantes at one stroke. Louis the Eighteenth, much preoccupied while annotating Horace with the corner of his fingernail, heroes who have become emperors, and makers of wooden shoes who have become dauphins, had two anxieties, Napoleon and Mathurin Brunau. The French Academy had given for its prize subject the happiness procured through study. M. Bellat was officially eloquent. In his shadow could be seen germinating that future advocate-general of Bois, dedicated to the sarcasms of Paul-Louis Courier. There was a false Chateaubriand named Marchangy in the interim until there should be a false Marchangy named d'Alencourt. Claire de Albe and Malik Adel were masterpieces. Madame Coutin was proclaimed the chief writer of the epoch. The Institute had the Academician, Napoleon Bonaparte, stricken from its list of members. A royal ordinance erected Angoulême into a naval school, for the Duc d'Angoulême being Lord High Admiral, it was evident that the city of Angoulême had all the qualities of a seaport. Otherwise the monarchical principle would have received a wound. In the Council of Ministers the question was agitated whether vignettes representing slack-rope performances which adorned Franconi's advertising posters and which attracted throngs of street urchins should be tolerated. M. Peer, the author of Agnes, a good sort of fellow, with a square face and a wart on his cheek, directed the little private concerts of the Marquis de Sassenay in the Rue Villa Le Evenique. 
All the young girls were singing the Hermit of Saint-Aville, with words by Edmund Gerard. The Yellow Dwarf was transferred into Mirat. The Café Lemblin stood up for the Emperor against the Café Valois, which upheld the Bourbons. The Duc de Berry, already surveyed from the shadow by Louvel, had just been married to a princess of Sicily. Madame de Stael had died a year previously. The bodyguard hissed Mademoiselle Maz. The grand newspapers were all very small. Their form was restricted, but their liberty was great. The Constitutionnel was constitutional. La Minerva called Chateaubriand Chateaubriand. That made the good middle-class people laugh heartily at the expense of the great writer. In journals which sold themselves, prostituted journalists insulted the exiles of 1815. David had no longer any talent. Arnault had no longer any wit. Carnot was no longer honest. Sur had won no battles. It is true that Napoleon had no longer any genius. No one is ignorant of the fact that letters sent to an exile by post very rarely reached him, as the police made it their religious duty to intercept them. This is no new fact. Descartes complained of it in his exile. Now David, having, in a Belgian publication, shown some displeasure at not receiving letters which had been written to him, it struck the royalist journals as amusing and they derided the prescribed man well on this occasion. What separated two men more than abyss was to say the regicides, or to say the voters, to say the enemies, or to say the allies, to say Napoleon, or to say Bonaparte. All sensible people were agreed that the era of revolution had been closed forever by King Louis the Eighteenth surnamed the immortal Arthur of the Chateau. On the platform of the Pont Neuf, the word Redevivieu was carved on the pedestal that awaited the statue of Henry the Fourth. M. Paillet, in the Rue de Teresa, number four, was making the rough draft of his privy assembly to consolidate the monarchy. The leaders of the right said at grave conjunctures, We must write to Bacot. M. M. Canuel, O'Mahony, and de Chapadelaine were preparing the sketch, to some extent with Monsieur's approval, of what was to become later on the conspiracy of the Bord de Lue of the waterside. Le Pingel Noir was already plotting in his own quarter. De la Verderie was conferring with Trogoff. M. de Quezes, who was liberal to a degree, reigned. Chateaubriand stood every morning at his window at number 27, Rue Saint-Dominique, clad in footed trousers and slippers, with a madras kerchief knotted over his grey hair, with his eyes fixed on a mirror, a complete set of dentist instruments spread out before him cleaning his teeth, which were charming, while he dictated the monarchy, according to the Chateau, to M. Pilorge, his secretary. Criticism, assuming an authoritative tone, 
preferred Lafon to Talma. M. de Filetez signed himself A. M. Hoffman signed himself Z. Charles Nodier wrote Therese Albert. Divorce was abolished. Lyceums called themselves colleges. The collegians, decorated on the collar with a golden fleur-de-lis, fought each other apropos of the king of Rome. The counter-police of the chateau had denounced to her royal highness, madame, the portrait, everywhere exhibited, of M. the Duc de Orleans, who made a better appearance in his uniform, of a colonel-general of hussars, than M. the Duc de Berry in his uniform of colonel-general of dragoons a serious inconvenience. The city of Paris was having the dome of the Invalids regilded at its own expense. Serious men asked themselves what M. D. Trinquelag would do on such an occasion. M. Clausel de Montaus differed on divers points from M. Clausel de Cosarogues. M. D. Salaberry was not satisfied. The comedian Picard, who belonged to the academy, which the comedian Moliere had not been able to do, had the two filiberts played at the Odeon, upon whose pediment the removal of the letter still allowed Theatre of the Empress to be plainly read. People took part for or against Cougenet de Montalot. Fabvier was factious, Bavot was revolutionary. The liberal Pellissier published an edition of Voltaire with following title, Works of Voltaire, the French Academy. That will attract purchasers, said the ingenious editor. The general opinion was that M. Charles Loison would be the genius of the century. Envy was beginning to gnaw at him, a sign of glory, and this verse was composed on him. Even when Loison steals, one feels that he has pause. As Cardinal Fesch refused to resign, M. de Pins, Archbishop of Amasi, administered the Diocese of Lyons. The quarrel over the valley of Dap was begun between Switzerland and France by a memoir from Captain, afterwards General Dufour. Saint-Simon, ignored, was erecting his sublime dream. There was a celebrated Fourier at the Academy of Science, whom posterity has forgotten, and in some garret an obscure Fourier, whom the future will recall. Lord Byron was beginning to make his mark. A note to a poem by Millevoye introduced him to France in these terms, a certain Lord Baron. David de Angers was trying to work in marble. The Ab Karan was speaking, in terms of praise, to a private gathering of seminarists in the blind alley of Fuliantins, of an unknown priest, named Felicite Robert, who at a later date became Lemini. A thing which smoked and clattered on the Seine, with the noise of a swimming dog, went and came beneath the windows of the Tuileries, from the Pointe Royale to the Pont Louis XV. It was a piece of mechanism which was not good for much, a sort of plaything, the idle dream of a dream-ridden inventor, an utopia, a steamboat.
The Parisian stared indifferently at this useless thing. M. de Vaublanc, the reformer of the Institute by a coup d'etat, the distinguished author of numerous academicians, ordinances, and batches of members, after having created them, could not succeed in becoming one himself. The Faubourg Saint-Germain and the Pavilion de Maussan wished to have M. de Laveau for prefect of police on account of his piety. De Poutrin and Ricamier entered into a quarrel in the amphitheatre of the School of Medicine, and threatened each other with their fists on the subject of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Cuvier, with one eye on Genesis and the other on nature, tried to please bigoted reaction by reconciling fossils with texts and by making mastodons flatter Moses. M. François de Neuchâteau, the praiseworthy cultivator of the memory of Parmentier, made a thousand efforts to have the pomme de terre potato pronounced Parmentier, and succeeded therein not at all. The Ab Gregor, ex-bishop, ex-conventionary, ex-senator, had passed in the royal polemics to the state of infamous Gregor, the locution of which we have made use passed to the state of, has been condemned as a neologism by M. Royer Callard. Under the third arch of the Pont du Jena, the new stone with which the two years previously the mining aperture made by Blucher to blow up the bridge had been stopped up, was still recognizable on account of its whiteness. Justice summoned to its bar a man who, on seeing the Comte de Troyes enter Notre Dame, had said aloud, Sapristi! I regret the time when I saw Bonaparte and Talma enter the Belle Sauvage, arm in arm. A seditious utterance, six months in prison. Traitors showed themselves unbuttoned, men who had gone over to the enemy on the eve of battle made no secret of their recompense, and strutted immodestly, in the light of day, in the cynicism of riches and dignities, deserters from Ligne and Quatrebas, in their brazenness of their well-paid turpitude, exhibited their devotion to the monarchy in most barefaced manner. This is what floats up confusedly, pell-mell for the year 1817, and is now forgotten. History neglects nearly all these particulars, and cannot do otherwise. The infinity would overwhelm it. Nevertheless, these details, which are wrongly called trivial, there are no trivial facts in humanity, nor little leaves in vegetation, are useful. It is of the signamy of the years that the signamy of the centuries is composed. In this year of 1817, four young Parisians arranged a fine farce. End of Book 3, Chapter 1 of Les Miserables by Victor Hugo Recording by Betty Greeby in Wapella, Illinois